Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to another episode of New Books in Religion. I'm your host, Christian Peterson. For each program, we choose a new book in the field of religion that's especially interesting, and we chat with the author about that book. Today, I had the pleasure of speaking with Catherine Lofton about her new book, Oprah, the Gospel of an Icon. In this very enjoyable read, Lofton cleverly unravels Oprah's story within the broader context of American religiosity and the academic study of religion. She contends that modern religion is not something distinct that we can analyze, but should be conceived of as an interaction of various modalities, which are often bracketed off as spirituality, commodity, or corporatism. In our interview, we explore various topics weaving in and out of the content of the book, covering politics, public policy, ritual, capitalism, 9-11, the University of Chicago, and Jonathan Z. Smith, among other things. We also had time to discuss the website Frequencies, a co-curated project funded by the Social Science Research Council, as well as various reactions to the project from from critics on the imminent frame. Lofton was a delight to talk to, as you can tell from her engaging presence, and for those who have not yet read the book, be reassured that her personality and sharp insight shines through the text. We had a lot to talk about, so without further ado, here's the interview. Welcome to another episode of New Books in Religion. Uh, today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Catherine Lofton about her wonderful, wonderful book, uh, Oprah, the Gospel of an Icon. And uh, thank you very much for joining us today, Catherine. I really appreciate you making the time. Uh, thank you so much for having me, Christian. This is really exciting. Yeah, it's, uh, it's great. The, I, I must say, the, I, I found the book really to be excellent, um, not only in the content, but in the way you structured it, uh, your writing is effortless and enjoyable. Oh. And it's really, uh, for being an academic book, uh, it was, it was one of those books I really didn't want to put down. Um, so, uh, oh, 
Thank you for writing a great book. So long. You're singing me so that means so much to me, as you know so well. Like I mean, we are, we're all people trying to not only speak to our communities of sort of insular scholarship, but also we have. I, I, I did have the small fantasy that we could speak outside, so that means a lot to me. It means a lot to me. Thank you. Really yeah, kind. I think you. Uh, I think you did a great job. Um, before we get into this great book, though, um, could you just give us a little bit of background on on who you are and how you got interested in the study of religion? Sure. Um, you know, I always, because as a historian, you think, oh, this is a Rashomon thing. I should immediately think of seven different points of entrance, because how did it come to pass that, that I converged on this plot? I, um, it was, it's the last thing I think, I think the first thing I say is this is the last thing I would have ever imagined doing with my life when I was, you know, a, a, a girl or in high school. Um, I was raised in a context that I would later find out language for which would be something like a red diaper baby. Um, and I didn't know what that meant. I wouldn't have known what that meant until I was in college and I heard that used by professors. But it's just to say I was raised in Milwaukee by parents who were you know, identifiably leftist and um, they were both raised in uh, pretty Catholic backgrounds and they both um, left the church along with also um, getting pretty involved in the counterculture and particularly Milwaukee at the time in the southeastern Wisconsin had a pretty strong socialist community and but also just a very creative community, a lot of artists, a lot of people trying to think differently about how to live in lots of ways. And in different ways, my parents got involved in that um, to different extents. And we were raised, my siblings and I, I always use the language that we were raised in a secular orthodoxy, which just is beyond dorky to say, but just there was, you know, kind of rules and ideas about everything. So, you know, you'd go to the grocery store, you know, the kind of pick and save, and that you'd get a long lecture about why there were so many different kinds of ketchup and um, what's so wrong about where food comes from. And this is long before Michael Pollan made it very understandable to all of us why it's so disturbing. And so the world was a lecture. Like I was constantly being lectured and I would say inculcated and, and offered a kind of um, a, a relatively incoherent ideology because my parents, um, you know, though I would say, you know, they're associated with what we would call the left. It was, you know, as incoherent as the left often is, you know, so there's no book I could point to and say, oh, this was their theory of the world. No, I mean, it was a hodgepodge of their own very working class backgrounds um, and the kind of nascent reading that they were both doing about how we can make the world that was more equitable. And so they wanted all three of their children to go out in the world and you know, kind of build a better world in some way or another. And I think um, one thing that it was very clear from my childhood, my earliest memory, which also dates me as being, I suppose, pretty young, but my earliest memory is my father screaming at the face of Ronald Reagan on the television screen. And so that there's just something wrong with the way that the country was being run and being conceived. And as it turns out, they had three children and, and you know, one is now a real estate attorney. Another one works in hedge funds and I am a professor. So I think that their dream was somewhat denied uh, in, in the sense of <laughs> all of us kind of belonging to very uh, old institutional structures. But um I think all three of us kind of grew up, grew up plotting at different times that we were going to be uh, everything from the heads of our own small countries to starting important activist groups that help the poor in the South. I mean, these were the kind of fantasies that we circulated around. And perhaps unsurprisingly, then, you know, each of us had a kind of reaction against that. And when I was starting to think about college, I wanted, I thought that what I would want would be a, to be in a context where um, a kind of opposite view is being articulated. And so for me, that really drew 
roomy to go to, um, and, you know, again, a very geeky kid, obviously, if I'm dreaming in eighth grade about like an opposite intellectual advantage, you can picture the kind of overall book carrying character, Matilda-like person I was, that I thought I researched and, you know, did extensive research and found that the most conservative, one of the more conservative universities in the country was the University of Chicago. And I kind of like was bent upon going there with this idea that I would encounter know the other you know the sort of the very critique that had produced the reaganomics that had been so much the source of um childhood anguish and anger and so um so i kind of plotted and i had you know visions in my head i was going to be a public policy major and anyway so i go to college and um and i go to this university and was very very fortunate to go there it's a great place but um it was a place that was at the time and i think maybe to some extent still is shrouded in a lot of um, like lore about the depression of the undergraduates and the kind of bleak place for undergraduate life. And I didn't find it to be that way at all. I was so thrilled to be in a big city. I was so thrilled to be um, at a place with so many other people who wore overalls and had planned like college futures from eighth grade forward. You know, I was among my kin and I was also really glad to be with a lot of people who were raised in incredibly different ways. Um, It was the first time in my life I'd ever met people from a lot of divergent economic backgrounds and, um, you know, ethnic backgrounds. It was just an incredibly, an encounter with a different world, albeit obviously a very, very elite one. And um, and in that context, I started studying public policy right away. That was kind of my passion. And I got very involved with all of the, at the time, um, the Obamas were there. And Michelle Obama was the dean of student services. And she was really engaged in trying to make the undergraduate body, who were a pretty geeky cohort who rarely left the library, to get out into the city and be involved in the city. And I was doing a series of kind of volunteer engagements that were serving also as kind of sociology practicums. You would go and you would kind of get, not, not credit hours, Hours, but you kind of get experience in the field in a variety of nonprofit situations. And I started going in particular to one soup kitchen and then to a youth program. So a, a soup kitchen kind of on the near north side and a youth program that particularly targeted kids in what was at the time kind of the fading Robert Taylor Homes, a public housing project that would eventually be phased out by Daly. And in both contexts, kind of two things happened to me. One is I really saw, and this again shows, I mean, the, I, I hope the whole story sounds like the most naive dorky character in the world you know like here I thought you know you could change the world go meet the and I go into the world and I discover two things which are probably very obvious to everyone else in the world one um, it is really hard to change the world like it's a really hard thing and I'm pretty sure that you know bureaucracy and pushing around paper are not the most effective ways of changing the world but that's what I was being trained in I was being trained in thinking about how a situation and structures of situations are created what's the best form of policy to form to try to give the you know, basic modicum of services to people and uh, the, the kind of devastating encounter was twofold. One is um, I was at this soup kitchen one day and I was supposed to be taking all these notes. So you went as an ethnographer and took a lot of notes on the circumstance. And I noticed it's a very, very big space, a famous large soup kitchen in Chicago. I noticed that there were five other women. Uh, I would say um, young white women, all probably from Northwestern, uh, UIUC and University of Chicago, taking notes on the room. And I felt immediately just kind of revulsed by myself. I sort of saw myself. And these women, I'm sure, are wonderful women who have gone on to notable service-oriented careers. But there was just something very strange, I thought, about a sitting corners and observing the suffering of other people. And it just that felt very strange to me. But it was so integral to our training to kind of learn and watch the world in this kind, this particular way. And then secondly, in the youth programs I was involved with, 
this was an amazing operation that did so many different things and, you know, had in its website and continues to this day to have all these kids who, because they go to these youth programs in the particular ways, they were both educational and recreational. They would go on to college and get scholarships. It was one of these great kind of uplift programs. But what I always found really upsetting about their press was that they didn't notice, you know, the number of kids who went through the cracks. So I'd say in a given cohort, I did the Saturday morning mentorship program, about 16 girls. One of them would be that story. The other 15 would not be on website. And one of the things that I noticed um, between two summers is I came back and three of the girls who the year before had seemed just really bedraggled and struggling and came from pretty difficult home circumstances. When I came back the following fall, after having gone home um, to work for the summer, they were all just a little bit more upright. They, uh, you know, they, they dressed a little differently. They spoke a little differently. And I, I asked one of them, what happened to you girls this summer? And they all three invited me to their church. And they went to this church on uh, the south side of Chicago, the Apostolic Church of God, which was run by the then uh, kind of amazing, legendary Bishop Arthur Brazier. And I had in my, it's worth knowing right away, I had never been inside a church. I'd been inside many synagogues for uh, bar and bat mitzvah, but I had never been inside a church. I had a very strong view, very critical view of the church. The church here now is a monolith that was invented by my parents. <laughs> and... Um, and I went and I was just, I mean, I was, I, in all those naive ways, I was just absolutely floored by what I witnessed, by the sense, too, that these, this church had all of these ministries in operation. Again, that's a word I'd never been heard before. I mean, can't, I cannot express the level of my ignorance. So I go and I had no, I had never seen kind of religious ritual except in like Leap of Faith with Steve Martin. I mean, I was just a blank slate when it came to the question of religion. And then I go and it was a very, I mean, a, a very powerful, enormous church. I'm not quite a mega church, but pretty big church and um, Pentecostal, one is Pentecostal. So, you know, you had speaking in tongues, you had amazing singing, but more importantly, more to my immediate eye, although the, the singing and the, the glossolalia would become interesting to me, but at the media was the political exigency of this place and the way in which, and political here was changing for me because I came in with this very liberal view of politics as large structural change. Um, it's trying to create economic equality. And instead, what I hear is all this. What I see here is all this small-scale change. You know, change. And again, this is totally familiar to people who are much smarter than I am on these subjects. But I just had never thought about, you know, family ministries, divorce mothers ministry, drug ministries, all these things that we would now put under this, you know, fancy big word of neoliberalism. They were already doing, which is sort of intimate change. How do you make a person function better in their given day? And I literally watched as a lot, and I, I began to understand that a lot of the kids we were trying to help through the secular youth group were being siphoned off by these churches that were seemingly more effective by any kind of measure. And of course, those measures become the grounds of a lot of, um, you know, faith-based funding in the Bush administration. And we'll just skip that for now. But for right now, let's just say this, you know, me in the 90s in this church, my mind was blown. And, um, and I think because it also countered the liberal view I had of the black church, which I associate with the civil rights movement, and again, this sort of large-scale structural change and not knowing about the ways in which the church was so intimately involved and this particular branch, but intimately involved in the lives of its parishioners. And so I became totally riveted, and I happened to be fortunate enough to be in a school that had other programs that were good besides public policy. And in particular, it had um, Chicago had both a divinity school, obviously, for which it's very well known, but also this very small major, so small that I was the only major of the year I graduated, called Religion in the Humanities, for which there was at the time one faculty member, a man named Jonathan Smith, who is a, a kind of scholar of religion extraordinaire, but I did not know any of that. I just knew I wanted to study religion now and somehow in combination with public policy. And I took that, that, 
that quarter, I was able to enroll in a class with him on ritual studies. I was able to enroll in a class at the Divinity School on the introduction to the New Testament, a book I had never cracked. Like if you would have said to me, what is the New Testament? I would have said, it is in the Bible. And that would have been the limit of my ability to speak. And I took a class on early American religion with a scholar named Catherine Breckus, who was a relatively new faculty member at the Divinity School. And then I continued to take this public policy practicum that was a part of my major. And um, and I have to say that that quarter, which was my sophomore year, Dorklet, that was a very transformative time. And, and, and everything just moved for me. All my interests moved from um, a kind of, I would say, an anthropology of the immediate political now um, and sociological now into this study and interest in the genealogy of the present. Like, how did we get to the place now? And then what would be the best propositions for change in the future? And, and I was just like, I was, you know, I, you know, I was a, 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 a pig in trash. It was just, it was amazing. I was so joyful. I was just, that was gorging on taking these classes that seemed to me to unlock questions that I thought were the limit of public policy and its analysis. And, and public policy here, I would just say, is a stand-in for political change. Like, where does politics stop? And true, what I would say, ontological difference begin. And and I found that in the study of religion. And, and I did because I was just really, really lucky to be near people who had made that also their project. And, and so I just... Uh, that's where it sort of began to think differently. And then I had to report home, you know, to my parents and my family that I had gone to study religion, as many of us, and maybe you've also experienced Christian, it's, you know, they, the, first of all, it was a shock. And then the sense, and then the sense of, you're doing what, like, I, like it, I would say years, an, an ongoing act of explication, you know, because to collude with, to study religion seemed to collude with it. Religion itself seemed to be such a problem in the history of the world, particularly in the histories that were important to the people I grew up with. So, um, so anyway, it's just comic that, you know, for a lot of people, you know, being an academic is seen as this very leftist thing to do, but in my world, it's seen as the most conservative, you know, anti-revolutionary thing to do. So, um, any event, that's a, that, I think that's good. It's good to have people on the outside questioning you. It makes you keeps you honest. Yeah, that's great. That's a really interesting story. And uh, you know, after talking to, to lots of authors, it's it's amazing all the different paths that people take, and and really the the event of randomness. Uh, you know, yeah, following this this you know these surprise events that you never expect. So that's great. Um, so how, this is a you know a very unique book. How how did the story for this book come about? Well, I think, um, God, randomness, I love, I love that word. I just love the invocation of that word. Uh, it makes me feel so safe. I don't know why. I think, right, random. It's okay. We can, we can trip there. I think, you know, on the one hand, um, I, 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 I was always very nervous about, um, uh, I would say I, I, I retained from my childhood a lot of nervousness about when other people tell you what is great or what is classic or what is good. Um, I think, you know, what is, what is Marxism if not a constant question, a constant naming of the fraudulent. So at its best, I mean, Marxism is a failed notion all kinds of ways, but as a description of the world, it's basically saying the things you think are maybe given to you in a way that's really upsetting, disturbing, and maybe kind of creating a false consciousness. And and I think I went to Chicago and, and there was this kind of great books curriculum, which I really loved on the one hand. It was totally awesome for people to just be handing you books and saying, now that you've read these books, you really know something. Now, the fact that I didn't really feel like I'd you know, come to that kind of enlightenment through them didn't really matter. I, I, I just was interested in the feeling that it superimposed on you. And this is a lot of education, right? Like you hand a kid a list and then they think they know something about the world. And and at the time that I was taking a lot of courses that were sort of what we call this great books curriculum with classes like titles, um, you know, human being and citizen or 
um, self-culture in society. And um, as I was taking those classes, I was also living in a dorm and, um, you know, there was kind of common television room and we would watch late at night, kind of lousy TV, everything from the Golden Girls, Friends reruns to like real world Seattle. And, um, you know, being the kinds of, again, like very large glasses, acne ridden, overall wearing kids, we would sit in front of these kinds of programs and apply our, you know, reading of Hobbes and Marx and Locke to these texts. And, you know, this was real sport and fun. And, you know, there'd be kind of a hierarchy would emerge of who could say the coolest thing relative to the dynamic of the Golden Girls and a rigor you know. So anyway, that was kind of what unfolded. And um, in being in Chicago, Oprah Winfrey, her show repeated at night. So it was at 4 p.m., the standard hour for Oprah, at 11 p.m. it repeated. And so I would find myself really sailing in that hour. That would be an hour I would really be in my my, my, my home, my, um, my wheelhouse. And I often found that for some people would really fade away. Like it was definitely the case that when that show came on, you'd see like a lot of the guys would leave the room or, you know, it would not really. But for me, I found it riveting. There was something in that show. And again, I was a child. I mean, I was a person raised without popular culture. So one of the rules of the house and my parents' house is that we didn't, we, we only could watch PBS. And um, I was assigned a lot of books to read. You know, I had not, I consumed a very small, the only pop culture I got was from a local radio station in Milwaukee, 94 WKTI, where I got top 40 radio. But otherwise it was a very um, a formalized environment. So this was really to me gluttonous. First of all, to have a TV on period. And then secondly, to be watching something that would be seen by any, and even a, a less strict parent, you know, kind of the absurdity over a Winfrey show where you have like the, just the decadence of human suffering on display. But I found it under, you know, again, probably predictably really riveting and started to watch. And, and I wrote, and when I was in college, I wrote one paper about her show in a class that Smith did and sort of thinking about the ritual of the makeover. So early on thinking about that. And then, um, but then I, I really got into history and sort of, it was just sort of an interest I had as sort of, a, I would say, a, an ongoing interest in popular culture and what popular culture did for people, the feeling that it gave me late at night, what it gave other people. Um, and then, uh, so I went to graduate school really planning to write about African-American religion more broadly. I went to study at North Carolina with a woman named Lori Maxley Kipp, a wonderful scholar of American religious history with interest in many fields, but one of them happened to be African-American religions. And, um, and I went there really thinking I'd be working on 19th century materials with her. And indeed, from the beginning, she and my other advisors, including Tom Tweed and Grant West, um, we're all very encouraging of, of writing a historical project, but the way you really kind of get your bona fides in this field. And I agreed with this was to know intimately the archive and understand um, the archival construction of history. So I did that. But meanwhile, one of the cool things about being a grad school at UNC is you had to teach a ton. And so like from the first semester, you were involved in the pedagogy of undergraduates and keeping in mind again, like uh, keep in mind the naive girl now moves from the Midwest and kind of left this Midwest and then moves to the South. And, and it was awesome. I mean, it was an amazing encounter with both a different version of, of American life, period, but also American religious life. And to go into the classroom and be teaching in classes like Bart Ehrman's, you know, introduction to the New Testament class, to be doing that kind of work with an undergraduate body that is so um, predominantly evangelical. Amazing. I highly recommend it. That is like an education in the study of religion right there. And meanwhile, I would find in those classes that, um, that, that, you know, as we all do, we all struggle in teaching to connect to our students. And popular culture is, of course, one of the many ways you could do that. But I just consistently found that Oprah was a way. It, didn't, it seemed to me there was no subject in the study of religion, period, 
like I'm talking anything, you know, taking your own materials and Islam or China. I mean, give me a subject. I could take it back to the, uh, and so I found that it didn't matter if I was teaching a class on like history of Christianity or world religions or introduction to Islam. It, it didn't, because we were just tossed into all these classes as graduate students there. Oprah just became a way for me to talk and indeed pop culture in general. And, but meanwhile, I worked on a project, a dissertation about ideas of the modern and late 19th century. And I kept doing work and scholarly work in other areas, but I just found in Oprah a repository um, that seemed unlimited. And then when I moved on from graduate school, I would just say a, a series of things came around in my life, both personally and politically, where it seemed to me just incredibly important that our work answer as exigent questions as possible. I would say um, probably the easiest thing to indicate is that, you know, I, I had a dissertation. I was disappointed by it, frustrated by it. I was excited. I was excited about studying American religious history. I remain an incredibly impassioned participant in that field. But I also felt like um, there was something about our contemporary moment that I felt neither sociologists, political scientists, and religionists were not rightly acknowledging, which is to me a real shift in the way religious behavior is articulated. And, and so I felt, and especially I would say when Obama was in the process of being nominated, I mean, I had been thinking for some time that I would write a book about Oprah, but then that happened. And I thought um, it's not a matter of being timely. Cause I honestly didn't know when I would finish writing the book, but I just thought we are living in a now that need that, that needs an explanation. So I was Obama's nomination, the publication of, um, Charles Taylor's A Secular Age, which is a, a mammoth book for not for the faint of heart, but actually a pretty re- redundant one once you dig into it. And, and I really, I respect Taylor enormously. He's an amazing mind. I profoundly disagree with that book and really did not like a lot of the things he said. An amazing mind. I disagreed with I, I wanted to write against it. Um, and meanwhile, also being in the world of teaching and on the market and talking and just wanting, you know, I guess I, I, I think maybe the most, again, kind of naive and enthusiastic and idealistic part of me. I wanted to write a book I could teach and then I could get people excited about the thing that got me excited about religious studies. And I think you could do that with history. I just was not an apt enough historian to feel like I could do that with the historical yet that the project I was working on. And so I thought I would start with a project that I knew that I could walk in the middle of it. I could walk in the middle and say, aren't you excited about thinking this way? Because I am really excited about it. And doesn't it kind of blow your mind? And look at Obama. Like, he doesn't come from nowhere. He's not a miracle. He's actually kind of predictable and predictable in good ways and bad ways. And anyway, so um, so that's why I ended up working on that book, which at the time when I started working on it, a lot of people, people I really respect, encouraged me not to do because they just said, you know, popular culture is a kind of dangerous, uh, you know, uh, dangerous rail to set your hands upon. And, um, but I just, I don't know. I just, I felt that it had to be done. I don't know. I had to get it out of my body. So <laughs> that's what I did. Uh, well, you did a, you did a really good job. I don't, it doesn't feel like a book about popular culture at all. Um, oh. <laughs> which is, uh, which is definitely interesting. So, uh, con- connect the dots here. You, you say that, uh, it, it, early on in the introduction, you say Oprah Winfrey's empire offers a description of religion in modern society. So how, how, does, how can we start to examine this? How does, how does open, Oprah open this up for us? Um, yeah, so I would say um, for me, the question of looking at the religious now is unthinkable without taking up everything in our now. So I think that that was the first step that I had read a lot of really, truly, obviously wonderful um, religious histories that had folk. And here I want to mark at the beginning an anxiety about presentism, which is sort of seeping throughout the academy, that our scholarship needs to be very conscious of not 
you know, imputing to the past something that we are very recently experiencing. So, but at the same time, it seemed to me that um, the histories that I was reading in the study of religion, rightfully, I suppose, were this advantage focused on, I thought, a rather myopic understanding of what religion was, if they thought about it at all. And, and you know this well too, Christian, how many people don't really think about what that word means. They just kind of think, okay, I see Lutherans, that's religion. Or I see someone putting their hands together and talking about God, that's religion. So step one for me is like, what is religion? What are we looking for? And step two is um, when we're looking for it, what do we think its relationship is to everything else we're looking at? And I think, you know, when I look at the contemporary, the contemporary context, I, 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 I felt, and here obviously this is also a projection of my own childhood, but, um, but I felt too when I spoke even to students who I worked with and people I worked with who were passionately religious and came from really obviously denominational climes, I was so struck by you can't identify them purely through some sectarian vantage. It would be inconceivable to name um, you know, any of my students, be they Reformed Jews or Lutherans, through that category. That category if anything, the now seems so resistant to that. Like I'm, I'm not just that thing. I want to be multiple. I want to be abundant in my multiplicity. Now that one word for that could be Sheilaism, you know, Robert Bella identifying the desire for a person to be kind of the compass of their own morality. But I was also trying to reach, I would say even further than Sheilaism, because I wasn't just speaking about a moral compass. It was also about the ways that people occupy the now in ways that are, I think, very ritual, are very ordered around um, certain ideas of community. And it's not merely kind of pure solipsism, although that's certainly an accusation that's made, but it's also a kind of conscientious um, participation in the social world in ways that are so different than when you're looking at, let's say, antebellum reform movements and how they organize themselves. So when I talk about Oprah being, you know, um, an articulation of, of the religious now, I wanted to talk about the ways that people sought Endless individuation. I am a very special me and no one else is like me. And at the same time, people continue to participate in and find fascinating certain forms of both community, but also being identified by corporate bodies. So, you know, the easiest example of this is Facebook. I use it all the time. It's just, it's, it's both unfortunate and brilliant in its perfection here because, you know, Facebook is on the one hand, the, per, the endless individuation of us, right? Like you can design your, your page however you like, you have, you know, um, and, and you get to connect, you make your own special networks. At the same time, it is Facebook organizing you. And that's where all the articles come out saying, you know, they're looking at your information. They make decisions about public and private. You really have to work within their structures. They're kind of difficult to figure out their privacy settings. So I wanted to talk about that way of living in the now, which both obviously invokes and evokes sectarian life. That is what we look like when we're in churches, synagogues, and, and obvious um, religious movements. But also kind of the way our broader consciousness is determined by something that's more of a matrix between self and multiple kinds of authority. Um, so Oprah, for me, was both great because she's so easy in a way. Like, couldn't have anything more easy than Oprah. She's so, she was regularly on. She's so nice. She gives you gifts. You know, she talks about problems in a relatively simple way. But in that, that total simplicity, I also saw what I thought was kind of the bedrock uh, of the way that we now think, even though many people, indeed, as I give talks, I often ask people if people have seen an Oprah Winfrey episode, and I'd say, it's usually only like one out of five who have. So it is the case. I want to, she is a minority object. She's not for everybody. But in her, and in also the fact that she becomes such a majority figure, so we use her often as like an icon of, of, of America, of Black America, of success, of greatness, of, of a kind of deification of celebrity. But she's minority, not everybody, but I would say everybody has 
I would argue, there's no one in modern America who doesn't have some experience of the kinds of things that Oprah creates. Yeah, and this, uh, you, you bring this idea of kind of consumer culture uh, as being very prominent, this idea of being part of a corporate. Um, so in, in the case of Oprah, why, why does Oprah promote consumption? And, and what does, uh, in her perspective, what does consumption do for, uh, I don't know what to call them, but I guess the participant? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think the thing that, that, that I had to think about a lot is that there is, um, yeah, on the one hand, I was so fortunate because Oprah talks about everything. There's very few nouns under the sun that have not entered her vocabulary. On the other hand, she would literally take the obverse view of everything that I do. So on the question of consumption, I'm going to first say what she would say, and then I'll say what I would say. And I would always be fair to that. Like Oprah would not, the language of consumption is an act of creativity. It's an articulation of, I mean, it's just another mode through which the individual can find their particular expression. And um, there's to her absolutely nothing worrisome about consumer culture itself. There is no consumer culture. There's only the self. So there, there are worrisome things that people do. They gain credit card debt. They spend rather than, you know, relate. They, um, you know, she does have many, many shows about, you know, addictive shopping and about problematic finances. And she has kind of gurus like Susie Armand who come on and help women in those contexts. But um, for her consumption is, is a neutral category. And, you know, obviously my own position on that is it is, is it, it's usefully neutral insofar as like it labels a practice. But I don't see it ultimately as neutral in that um, in that for me, Oprah, however, she may problematize it by saying, oh, sometimes you girls go too far with the way that you spend. There's no question to Oprah that spending is a clear is a clear good in the articulation of the self. And that means spending everything from designing a foyer to, um, you know, picking out the right books for your own self-education. And I think that the, 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 what I want to point out there is that that's something that we all largely agree with. We live in a society for which to talk about the problems of consumption is something that there'll always be an article about in popular journals. But most people agree with Oprah that, you know, that, that it's reasonable to just go spend money as a part of your own self-articulation. But as we know, as historians, that's A, a pretty recent idea. So cons- consumer practice and consumerism as a way of understanding yourself is a pretty new idea. But secondly, it's also one that, uh, you know, carries with it a lot of problematic relationships to, um, to the origin of goods, but also to the idea of the self that is the consumer. And I, and I think that's the space where I, I welcome both theolo- theologians, ethicists, you know, other, other kinds of thinkers enter. I just really wanted to describe that Oprah's world, our world, is a world where buying is the solution to everything. There's just, there's just nothing that you come to be it political activism or family maintenance or relational struggle or beauty issues. It doesn't matter. Give me an issue. It's the, the first way. If you Google it, it's going to come to is going to be about somehow, you know, expending cash to do it and buy either a service or a good. And I wanted to think through that as being so it's such a rock idea. We can't get around it. And um, as, as something that we have, anyone who talks about the religious now has got to take that into account. Um, and I, and I, would, I want to emphasize here that I am very conscious of the ways in which there are always critiques. And, and we saw in Occupy Wall Street and the involvement of religious people in Occupy Wall Street. This is not to deny that there are people out there saying, gosh, maybe we've gotten ourselves into trouble here. This, I want to acknowledge that at the same time that I want to point to the way that there is, even within that, 
as we all know, you cannot argue your way out of consumer culture at this point. You could never, to, to limit consumer spending would be the most impossible thing any political leader could ask us to do. And, uh, and I want to I think about that as just a presumption of how we engage. Um, another very important part of kind of what Oprah represents is uh, the, this split or this dichotomy between religion versus spirituality. Mm-hmm. I, I'm wondering if you could, uh, you know, uh, give both her perspective and then and then kind of your perspective on this uh, about you know how would she define these terms um, for her? What what is the purpose of spirituality versus the purpose of religion? How do these how do these interact within people's lives? Yeah, I mean that's that was again one of the first things that drew me to her because when I was watching her show most in, at first that was in the '90s and that's when she was switching to this Change Your Life television where she was really incorporating a lot more talk about spirituality in her show um, due to a lot of kind of personal circumstances in her own life, um, but also as I, I try to talk about in the book, she's mapping onto larger patterns of change in in the broader popular culture where I would say spirituality entered the American mainstream popular culture in a very new way in the 90s. Um, but so she, she, for Oprah, spirituality is a category, again, that I think is very familiar to those of us who study it, which is it is a space of freedom in her mind. It is a space where um, people can connect to what she would say um, their best self through an acknowledgement of, um, of both disempowerment and empowerment. So spirituality is kind of a vague categorization for our freedom to find our relationship to the cosmos and that relationship, that, that, that relationship to something bigger than ourselves, as she says over and over again, is and should be as unpoliced as possible. That um, it should be a space where you of quiet, of exploration, of multiplicity. Now, um, religion for her is the, uh, is the uh, antithesis of that, is a structured relationship to that. I mean, it's not exactly it's not the antithesis. It's just a structured version of the same thing. So religions tell you, oh, we know, this is her version, we know what your best life looks like. We know what your relationship with a higher power should be. Here's what it is. Here's how to practice it. Do it. So for o- Oprah, the first is freedom and the second is oppression. And she experiences, and she articulates that through a kind of leitmotif of a critique of the black church, uh, male authority. Um, she sees religion as, as a lot of, I would say, kind of post-colonial subjects do, as the hand of power trying to manipulate um, the more spiritually cognizant, that is her and uh, other people who are oppressed, from really fully expressing themselves. So she hates religion, loves spirituality. Um, that said, she's been involved, as people know, in a variety of religious conclaves. She, she did briefly attend Jeremiah Wright church um but that fell away pretty much by the late 80s and and she became very much her own her own guide and leader i then would i'm just i I just want to mark first that to me she's very um typical in her critique of religion and her support of spirituality when you look at contemporary um both new age movements but also any kind of um non-denominated religious lives you know evangelicals say a lot of the same things that oprah does so even people you wouldn't think of as being kind of on the lefty spectrum of the new age share with oprah this kind of um, anxiety about what in olden days we might have called like ritualism or you know um the 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 kind of post 
symbolism of, uh, of, of certain forms of religious authority. And you can see, too, in, in Oprah, this um, kind of ghosts and vestiges of, you know, anti-Catholicism, anti-Islam, and uh, anti-certain forms of Buddhism. All of these are, you know, any time that, that, that we see this specter of, well, that kind of religion is really bad. We know there's like a history of bigotry that falls behind it. And here Oprah becomes the ideal Protestant subject, you know, endlessly re- revelating, endlessly coming to the realization of her immediate now. The difference for her is that she's also incorporating all other kinds of religious stuff. She's um, she's picking up any book on the bookstore shelf that appeals to her from, you know, stuff about yoga, um, you know, different kinds, as I talk about in the book, just all these different sorts of new age leaders, the pastiche of the now across ethnicity. And um, so I want to mark her both as very prototypical of a kind of basic position we all have of wanting to be free of ideas of structure. But then the thing I also want to look at is the structures that then guide her idea of freedom. And uh, in that, I think, obviously, you know, those people who are interested in studying religions for which there are more structures would find her critique somewhat um itself kind of crude and excessive. You know, I think about Saba Mahmoud's work about Islam and kind of her anxiety of this sort of liberal view towards any kind of rule is, a, is an inhibition. Any kind of rule is an oppression. And Oprah is definitely someone who, who articulates that kind of liberalism. And, and therefore, you know, in, in her descriptions of religion, I would say, um, becomes someone who is very much in the history of, of new religions because she's, in, anytime you're going to propose a new religion, you almost always make a kind of full sweeping scale attack on everyone who's trying to do the same thing that you are and saying, no, I'm the real, I'm the real, I'm, I'm, I'm spirit, the rest of them are religion. So I kind of want to mark her as being prototypical, indicative of a lot of patterns in the study of religion. Um, but also I would say the kind of problematic way for me in which language of spirituality is so deeply tied to uh, the history of capital and capitalism and, and seems to collude pretty well, unsurprisingly, with notions of the marketplace. Um, yeah. Um, I want to kind of follow up on this because um, it, so earlier you mentioned that, uh, you know, Oprah's gurus. And I, I'm wondering, you know, she brings in a lot of these characters uh, that really represent a wide spectrum of, of thoughts and ideas um, that echo each other, but they're not really uh, based on the same idea. So um, how would you say she's able to, to navigate uh, both kind of being this individualized spirit, as she calls herself, but also then, you know, what is the role of these these gurus like, uh, you know, Dr. Oz and Dr. Phil and all these people she sh- surrounds herself with? What what role do they play in uh, the Oprahfication, I guess, mm, as, yeah. as you put it? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, there's kind of two images I love. I mean, for people who haven't seen the show, um, but maybe know, I, I want to kind of give two images. Um, one, I want to just maybe these are even more far flung from people who are listening. Their, their image. One is um, give the, the the figure of Harvey Weinstein, who's the head of Miramax Studios. It's this you know independent movie studio. And I want to give. The, I want to throw the image of him in the air, and then I want to throw the image of Bill Gates in the air. So two very different kinds of of figure. So Bill Gates, head of Microsoft, and and Harvey Weinstein, head of, head of a movie studio. Both of those men are, I would, I would argue, kind of brilliant at their work for different reasons. But one of the key ways that when you kind of read stuff about them, because uh, one of the things I did in researching uh, Oprah in particular is I read a lot of work about, I wanted to read a lot of um, stuff about corporate leaders and kind of business, the way MBAs are trained now to think of themselves as leaders, because Oprah had taught a class on leadership at Northwestern, and I kind of wanted to think through 
how do business people talk about this? The thing that we would call kind of charismatic authority or um, kind of the preacher type. I wanted, and, and then secondly, I, I, I read a lot about um, kind of create, creative types of artists and, and, and how artists understand the idea of other people. And what, what we find when you look at something like Bill Gates or Harvey Weinstein is that their genius is twofold. One, their genius is that they have some basic skill, um, an eye for a a very particular, particular thing. And in the case of Bill Gates, he obviously has this technological ability. Harvey Weinstein is sort of a legendary, um, uh, you know, film critic. He knows a ton about movies. He just is gifted and from a young age, just like consumed them and knew a lot about them. But that is not enough. Like any kind of, that's just, that's just being a nerd. What makes you a great corporation, a good leader of a corporation is your ability to incorporate and to absorb and, 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 and I would say be both humble, have enough humility to recognize the possibility of someone else to brighten your star and, and to know that the more you incorporate, the more that you're elaborating your vision, you're not diminished, you're elaborated. And obviously that's a careful dance. As you and I know, like many a sectarian split has happened because, you know, a given preacher didn't realize how much more popular someone else's vision of the religion would be. But um, when it comes to corporate structuring, the best corporations are very good at not becoming a monomaniacal, but at including competing forms of thought that you can recognize as similar. So what Oprah did really brilliantly is that she, every time she encountered a consultant that worked for her and made sense of something for her, she said, ah, not only did she brilliant, this is what people always talk about in coverage of theirs, they say, oh, she thinks that what works for her works for you. That's true. But what she also knew is that what is going to work for her, she has to also get some semblance of control over because her product is herself and her transformation. And if somebody else can take over and name her transformation, that becomes a competitor to her. So she met Dr. Phil in Amarillo, Texas, when she was undergoing a lawsuit for um, having uh, said that she'd never eat beef again and beef future spell. And so a group of cattle ensued her and she met up with Dr. Phil and he really, a friend recommended him as a kind of counselor for her to talk to as she was dealing with this very difficult time. And she, um, it was really great because she not only met him and he gave her and she'd never gone to therapy before and she really liked him, but she could tell he had an ability and you, know, I'd say the kind of um, the Craven reading. There's a lot of kind of Craven readers of Oprah out there would say she didn't want him to go on the road saying I worked with Oprah and therefore becoming bigger than Oprah. That's a Craven reading. I would say it's always a combination of both. She met him, thought he was awesome, and said, "I think I'm going to incorporate you into what I do because you and I we share the same values." So with Oprah, it's always the corporate. It's, it's Harvey Weinstein meeting Lars von Trier and saying. You and I have the same values. And if you can put Google image, Lars von Trier and Harvey Weinstein, those are two very different kinds of people. But if you can say the, the power of a corporation to say there's really no difference at all, like we, we have the same vision. You don't know it, maybe, but we do. Now, as a scholar of religion, we're always endlessly trying to track diversity and recognize and celebrate diversity. But the thing I always want to emphasize about Oprah, and I would say particularly the kinds of religion that survive in it now, are those that actually render diversity um, safe under a kind of corporate auspice. So Oprah invites all of these kind of different kinds of people, all these different views about how to take care of yourself, make your best life. But she says to her audience, see, we're all really the same. We all get the O and that that O seal of approval means it's safe for you to use. And I would say that that's where, you know, if you track a lot of Oprah blogs, some of them will note that some of her, you know, ministers or sort of ministries 
are people who really, if you followed them out, lots of things might actually be dissenting from her. So if you take Susie Rahman, for example, this financial advisor, there's a lot that Susie Rahman talks about that doesn't really fully coordinate with the Oprah vision of consumption, but they coordinate enough. And more importantly, it mattered to Susie enough to collude with that, that corporate force that they kind of, you know, rubbed over their differences and just faced forward together. And I think Oprah's genius has been in um, recognizing not merely that what's good for her is good for the world, but that the, that her, that her brand and herself is promoted through evading difference through incorporation. Yeah. You, you do this very well in the book too. Uh, tying, uh, tying everything together very well. A lot of, a lot of dialogues that, uh, that you wouldn't normally think of in the same conversation, but, um, you, you do it very well. So thank you. Um, I, I want to return you. You do have a chapter on this this idea of the makeover as a social right, and uh, you know from from earlier speaking with you, it sounds like this is something you've kind of been mulling over for a long time. So I'm wondering if you could kind of, uh, you know, delineate this for us. How, how does this makeover echo a religious right? Um, it's really it's it, it, you know, Christian. When you watch some of these things, it's it, I, I want to say the reason that I chose Oprah over and over again is it was like it almost seemed like. Candy from a baby. It's so easy, and, and the minute you see it, the minute you see it, I just feel like you know. Um, and, and I think uh, you know, students who are working on dissertations, it's like they're often staring you right in the face. But you often want to make things harder than they need to be. And I think often scholars do that. We're like working, working, and what I ended up seeing with Oprah is I was watching the show every day and recording it. And after a while, I was like. Oh no! It really is. It is. It's the same. It's a. It happens the same way every time. And the, the shock of that, the shock of the way that TV is successful in part. So the first thing to say is that television itself, and and a couple people have written about this. Television itself is just one massive ritual. I mean, it doesn't matter. Anything that anybody who's listening has watched, they can say, you know, it doesn't matter if it's Grey's Anatomy or you know, The Biggest Loser or even a PBS documentary. I mean, they all have formats of expectation. And, um, you know, Henry Jenkins, who's a great theorist of media at MIT, he's written a lot about this and, and just the kind of expectations that we have in any given consumption of media. So the question then for the scholar of religion is we have to find also something that's been transacted. So it can't just be, I, I know that in a given Grey's Anatomy episode, a song is going to soar as four people struggle through their romantic and medical difficulties. It also has to be that in that process that um, something has been exchanged. And I think what's so great about the Oprah show is unlike just a, a kind of melodrama where you're given a single narrative, a kind of allegory of exchange in the Oprah show, it's actually happening on the show itself where, um, and so for people who haven't seen the show or experienced any of Oprah's products, she is great at collecting sad stories and then trying to intercede in those sad stories with kind of small bits of difference. Um, so, you know, let's say there'll be an episode about, you know, um, teachers who give it all at school. And so maybe people have sent in a bunch of letters because people were constantly writing Oprah about people that they loved and admired. And, and Oprah would do a show where she said, treat teachers get makeovers. And so she would bring in a teacher and um, the kind of the, the ritual would be that the, there'd be a, some kind of um, montage about the excellence of that person, their family life, maybe a little bit, how much they give to children and kind of stark images of material lack in the process. Like maybe they spend their own money on markers. So the students have markers or they don't have any chalk in their class. And so they do a bake sale for chalk and you kind of get the sense of, Oh, they're just, they'd be even more amazing if they just had a little bit more material good. And so Oprah enters in and, and not only gives recognition, 
recognition to their little lives and the plots that they experience, but also then makes their lives really big by connecting it to this larger community of teachers who struggle. And the answer that Oprah has is that Oprahfication becomes both the, 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 the testimony itself, I confess my difficulty, and then Oprah gives back the gift of twofold. One, material things, the you know, chalk or books or you know a vacation, but also the, the recognition of Oprah herself, that your suffering is seen, and that it's tied to a broader set of values that Oprah reiterates about women, about giving back to the world, about right community. And so setting up these women as kind of ideal subjects. Now, what this then knits to, too, is this is, so that's kind of the, the episodes that people are probably most familiar with. You, know, you go to Oprah, you get a car. But what I also link this to is there's very few Oprah episodes where you don't see some form of makeover because even in shows that are just interviews, interviews with celebrities, with lay people, even in shows where she's just talking about like the worst day of your life, um, she is also in those episodes doing a makeover and a transaction. So there's one very uh, kind of episode I, I didn't write about in the book, but it's an incredibly painful one. A woman in Virginia loses uh, her daughter when she's 18 years old. She is a young beauty queen who um, is seen as being a sort of delight, the light of her mother's life. She is one morning found dead and naked uh, by a river. Uh, obviously brutally killed in some way. It's very vague in the show. She has just one earring, stud earring left in her ear. These are the details that are told in the montage. Then you see this woman who's now brought to stage the mother and she's sitting there with Dr. Phil and Oprah and she's been grieving for 10 years, the death of this daughter. And the audience is listening as Dr. Phil now begins to interrogate this woman and saying, you know, would your daughter want you to grieve this way? Wouldn't your daughter be ashamed of you? Why would you not want to become better? her. And, and as a viewer, you're kind of both um, offended because he, he's being so aggressive to this woman who literally maintains a shrine of, this, of her daughter's room. Has not changed a single thing in her daughter. You see her stroking her uh, daughter's beauty gowns in the montage. And now you see Phil is just up in her face, being very aggressive. And the woman's crying and saying, oh no, she'd be very ashamed of me. And, uh, and, and at one point, Dr. Phil says, do you, do you not know that um, your, the length that you grieve is not uh, relevant to the love that you have for your daughter? That there's no equation, that the, no, the length of your grief does not measure the love of your daughter. And this is a revelation for the woman. She says, I, I don't know, I, I didn't know that. You go to a commercial break, come back, and the woman now, kind of right it, has used Kleenex, says to the audience, you know, I was going to go home today. I had set the goal of coming to Oprah this year, and I had said to myself I would come tell Oprah my story, and I would go home and commit suicide. Now I'm not going to because now I know that I need to stop grieving in order to continue to love my daughter. So the audience has now experienced the full tumult of a terrible story. They have watched a woman confess really awful details from that story. We've seen an intercession from a kind of authority who says, here's another way to live. She has revelation. The audience experiences a very familiar, this has happened many times before, where the right thing has been said, a transformation has taken place. No goods have exchanged hands. There's, there's no good in this episode, no products. But you feel a kind of relief. Oh, see, the world is righted. Like, you can get over terrible suffering. You can survive. And it's all the exchange of both the, the repetition of it. You've seen this many times before. But it's also a kind of re-gifting. You know, again, that person will not go home empty-handed. They will go home with some kind of axiom or idea. And I think that that's, you know, that's, a, that, that's something that should be so familiar. Even if you've never seen an Oprah show, you've seen shows that do things like this. We've seen ways in which the dark side of human nature is exposed in really kind of grotesque ways. Like, why do we have to hear such vivid details of a woman's death, of a, a young woman's death? 
in order to feel better ourselves. Well, that's just how it's done, we all say to ourselves. But I kind of want to point out that way. And it doesn't matter if it's a, you know, ESPN classic documentary, which, you know, always has the same bits in it or, you know, or, you know, um, behind the music on, on VH1. They all have kind of the same bits and tropes of revelation and collapse, collapse and revelation. And Oprah here just makes it into this very um, grand ritual. And I, in the book, talk about its relationship to kind of longer patterns in evangelical ritualization and other things like that. But the main thing I just want to point out is that in all of those, in that process, you notice that we've never really talked about why that young woman was murdered or what, what is, how do we think about death? What is the nature of grief? The, the larger abstract questions of, of, of this terrible tragedy are not brought up. What is brought up is sustenance, survival, relief, and the self-salved for another couple days, or at least till the next episode. Um, I'm wondering if you could uh, talk about the, the role of Oprah, the italicized Oprah, as, you know, being, she's a minority in many ways, uh, both her race, her gender. How, do, how has she been able to become uniquely accessible or uniquely universal? And, and you, you talk about her in this chapter uh, on, on preaching. Uh, you, you set the stage with this scene after uh, 9-11. And and she's the the representative. How how is it that that Oprah can be the representative for for America? Yeah, you know, um, I, I think it's I, I, there's way in which as you ask, ask that question, Christian. I'd love to hear everyone else in the world give their answer to that. The, the, because I'd love to hear what what other you know. I, I thought about this project being ethnography. I decided against that very staunchly for several reasons, but. Because I really wanted to just arrest my eyes to her and to what she made, but, um, but I think I in the in the chapter I really try to posit a couple things about what I think she represents, and I try to use evidence from both her own corpus, but also from various critical responses to her. But I also want to say that I think that this is this is a kind of uncomfortable subject. Talk about what Oprah represents is not it, it can be awkward for people because one of the first things that I want to say is um, that the fact of her being an African-American woman is so incredibly important to her success in this historical moment. And I try to relate that in the book to a couple different strands of history. One is a kind of post-civil rights um, exhaustion and the sense by, I think, a kind of broader white public that they don't want to be told what they've done wrong anymore. Now they just want to kind of feel good about the world and the, the, the you know, the, the equality that the 60s brought. They just don't, they don't want to think about what we call de facto segregation. They just want to celebrate the jour segregation being over and kind of enter into the light of a new um, post-racial world. Now, the academics among us are kind of all wincing at that, like post-racial world, like end of segregation. Okay, well, but meanwhile, Oprah, I think, represents both, A, I kind of hope, C, we're done with all those like bad problems, but also B, a much older, a much more archaic um, familiarity between, I'd say, a white middle-class public and African-American um, service people and the way in which the African-American woman in particular has represented um, nurture and love and spiritual care throughout American history. And, um, and here it's an icon. And the, you know, the image of Mammy is one that comes to people's minds. Obviously, Oprah is no Mammy. She owns everything that she surveys. She is the capitalist. She is in charge. But there is a way in which I think she serves very much a kind of spiritual 
purity that one that we have historically ascribed to black women because of the particular advantage of suffering that they've had. Now, at the same time, Oprah herself denies all the time being ascribed merely as black and or woman. She 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 wants those categories. She has thought a lot about them. She's made movies about them, um, but she is also wary. She is, I would say, very much a kind of what I would call a um, uh, herself a kind of a, a post-Reagan kind of a racial actor. She really does want identity to not to only be determinative, as she says, not as anyone else says. And uh, she's herself said she's against things like affirmative action, for example. So. So I, I would say that she represents also, though, a, another kind of long mythology, which is the kind of Horatio Alger, you know, up by your bootstraps, the fantasy of anyone can make it. And this is her own endless invocations of walking on a dirt road in Mississippi and segregated Mississippi. Um, and that now she's this, you know, this incredibly wealthy woman and sort of represents success in many ways. Um, I'd say third. So first is a kind of our kind of longstanding racial imagery. Second is um one orients around a kind of idea of American capitalist success. But third, I would just say is that we live in an age and the, the 9-11 memorial was so powerful to me because um, those of you might not remember it, she was at the head. They had at the Yankee Stadium, they brought all these religious leaders, so people who represented specific denominations and sects. But then she was the overarching leader of that. For me, that was just a perfect metonym for the religious now. That whatever the particularity people may occupy, oh, I go to this church, that church, this, that in the end, Oprah is actually the ultimate religious leader because she incorporates all of them into herself. And I, I, I relate that to a, to an image that we have in our mind of 1893 in the World's Fair. And, and that now we have, instead of a kind of obviously Protestant pastor, which is what happened in 1893, we have Oprah, who's the celebrity pastor. And here I think celebrity becomes also important. And we live in an era where you're really not going to be successful in public life unless you develop and cultivate an aura of celebrity. And we, I think we see that in our politicians. I think we see that. I think, you know, I, I, I feel like I would love to tell the Romney campaign, if Romney would only write an incredibly confessional memoir. If he'd written one a year ago, he'd have a much better running chance, you know, where he actually talked about you know, everything from his marriage to being, you know, in the struggle of um, his own Mormon past, which is actually fascinating, and his family's own genealogical relationship to Mormon. It's fascinating. But that he doesn't do that is one of the many reasons why he doesn't quite get, I think, the contemporary media situation where if you cannot learn how to turn your story into a commodity and make yourself, therefore, into a kind of circulating commodity... You're not going to be successful. And Oprah here, when she's standing at the, this, in Yankee Stadium as the leader of that prayer, she wasn't just representing, um, you know, because she has no relationship to New York City or to the 9-11 bombing. She was in Chicago. What, what does she have to do with it? Well, what she has to do with this is that she represents kind of simultaneously the American sense of, of hope for the future because we're always going to survive economically, spiritually, because we have this sort of internal, endless um, ambition to move forward. But also a sense that um, that there is that there is no rivets between us that we can be incorporated into holes that whatever our own diversity is the mass number of diverse faces there is a kind of ideal American whole and that could be any number of races religions creeds and Oprah is. You know, just like one could say that, you know, at any given time, Julia Roberts or Charlize Theron may stand in for the beautiful face Oprah stands in for in America, like the American, you know, the, the best that America has to offer. And in that is obviously this strong strand of spirituality, but is also this racial and gendered and, and political past. Um, this is a good segue uh, to the, the epilogue, which, uh, you know, you're, you're doing a lot more in the book here, but uh, I don't want to take your whole afternoon. Uh, but in the epilogue, uh, you basically outline the steps of Oprahfication, 
And uh, you, you explain this in relation to Obama and how Ob- the, you talk about the Oprahification of Obama. So mm-hmm. what are these steps we take and how, how, does, how did Od- Obama do this? Uh, yeah, I appreciate you. Know, it's funny. Um, when I was first working on this book, I, I was writing this book um, when I was uh, fortunate. I was really, really lucky to get this great fellowship at Princeton. Um, and I wrote the book that year. Um, and that was the year that that was, that was 2008, 2009. So I wrote this thing that I, I write sometimes for this blog, The Imminent Frame, and they were trying to get responses to Obama's being elected in January. And I'd written on the subway in New York, just like driving, you know, I was doing a bunch of things in New York one day. And I was just sitting there. I just literally stayed on a train line to the end from the Bronx. I went back writing these notes because I wanted to write something for this blog that expressed um, both my own. I mean, I think like a lot of people, I took, I took some pleasure in, in Obama's election. But I also, I would say maybe more than some people felt a lot of anxiety and, and just sort of disturbance about what had what had brought him to that office. So, um, you know, I, I can say I can say personally that is he is, he is truly a great man. He's a very thoughtful human being. Um, but I, because I could, I had some ability to say that about him as a person. I also wanted to say, but what we have done to him and what he has done to himself is a process, and the process by which he's become the, like our chanting ideal is to me somewhat worrisome. So I, I started to write these notes, and I went to my friend's house in Brooklyn for the night, and I read this to him. While I was so excited. I was like, "Oh, come on this!" And I finished reading it, and he looked at me, and he was like, "You are such a killjoy. You are so. This is terrible. Like, what are you doing? This is the happiest day in American history. And you're just being." And, and I think it's because, you know, for me, the Oprahification of Obama is about the strategies by which we produce um, agents of change, which I want to note to me is not the same thing as producing change. And so, to me, it mattered to go through the different ways that I saw Obama being so ideal. And I, I mean, I do everything kind of for more joking things like, um, you know, you have to have a name with an O in it because, you know, it's good for chanting Obama and Oprah. And, but also, you, know, you need to have a dog and, and the kind of ways in which, um, you know, like you too. So I kind of went to the joking things that they were connected by both Oprah and Obama, but also the more, um, saying the more substantial things about having a story of suffering that you yourself were never victim to, but were always constantly willing to trot out as your access to victims, um, to a kind of religious ecumenism that was um, Christian at its center, certainly Christian, but variable and could incorporate anything um, to being able, I think a passage. So one of the things I write about is how, um, you know, you are interested in, you know, you support the gay causes, but you may ultimately not stand up for gay politics. And I sort of take the point that you have to kind of be the middle that makes the mass. And how does one become the middle? Um, given that we're all our own peculiar people, how do you become appropriate for the masses? And and what I try to identify in that is how Obama made a very peculiar and strange person that he is into someone totally palatable and, and universal. And on the one hand, I want to say that I do think that that's fairly, you know, quote unquote, natural to him. But I think the part of it that that is indicative of what's strange is uh, one is I think that he came to office, and I think we all can say whether whatever your politics are, that the politics of, of campaigning are so different than the the strategies of legislation. And we see the struggles that Obama has had to actually be an agent of change. And I want to make an argument that the ways that we make ourselves so normative and middle may actually make it hard harder to be the leaders of difference. And I say this with all respect to him and to all and to Mitt Romney and to anyone who attempts to be right now the middle of America. Um, I think that, that that the claiming of the middle actually restricts your ability to be, um, I would use language of truly revolutionary, queer, 
different dissenting. Um, and I think maybe the best icon of this is Michelle Obama herself, who is a, a wonderful, fascinating, tough-minded woman and has made, been made and has chosen to be made in the public eye as basically a series of J. Crew outfits advocating weight loss for American teenagers and youth and trying to help military moms. Both are reasonable causes, but they are unsurprisingly very domestic, very embodied causes for a woman who is a fierce intelligence. And I promise you can speak on any political issue with incredible ability and dexterity, but has been largely rendered a fashion plate. And that transformation, what makes her palatable, is to me a very fascinating subject and and, and a site for uh, both, both I think, interest, because maybe this is the way certain kinds of change can come about, but also, I think, um, occasional disappointment and despair. Um, Catherine, if you don't mind, I, I, I'd, I'd like to leave the book for a moment. Um, and the reason is because uh, you, you've also done this wonderful project, Frequencies, which uh, seems related uh, because I, I feel like the Oprah book could have uh, been one of the entries on this on this website. Um, I'm wondering if you could just describe what Frequencies is for uh, those who don't know and maybe how, how that project came about and what, what your purposes or aims or uh, what you were hoping to achieve with that. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's funny. We, the, again, the lark that, that kind of certain ideas can be. Um, I was fortunate enough to be invited to participate in a series of events at the Social Science Research Council, which is an amazing um, nonprofit agency that basically supports exactly what the title suggests, but it tends to support work in the social sciences which I am not a social scientist, but um, at the time, a, a wonderful scholar of American religion named Courtney Bender, another great scholar of American religion, um, Omarik Roberts, were leading a group on spirituality and political change. And they invited me and a couple other people to come and meet and talk about just, you know, the, the state of thinking about the relationship between politics and spirituality. Um, and at those meetings, you know, I guess uh, they were wonderful, but I think the a couple of us in those meetings felt like we're not really like, making a change here. We're not really doing, we should be doing more with this. Like we have, we had, there was a grant that Courtney and Omar had won from the, uh, the Ford foundation. And we just thought there, the reason that we felt this frustration was nothing in the conversations. It was just our own sense that through those conversations, we realized spirituality is just this word that we all use and we don't really know what it means, but we do know what it means, right? Like I know it when I see it and I know what people are doing when they're invoking it. And we just kind of um, decided to myself and a colleague, John Lardis modern uh, at Franklin and Marshall decided to, we just started shooting around, like, what would be a way that you could kind of give a definition of spirituality? And, and we both kind of locked onto this idea of um, a curio cabinet, or trying to think about the ways in which spirituality is always la- labeled, first and foremost, as individuated, so that people could do whatever they want and market as spiritual. But, um, but we also thought, but we know, he and I and other people, we know that there's actually pretty a lot of consistency in the way people, even though they claim it's like endlessly diverse and weird and different, there's also some consistencies. And so we added this word genealogy. So we said it was going to be frequencies, a genealogy of spirituality. And um, the, the, the idea was to sort of try to pick up on frequencies, that is, pick up on ways that people talk about spirituality in the world and talk about it really specifically, while at the same time trying to maybe note, and this was going to be the second phase of the project, um, the ways in which they're patterned in their relationship. That was the word genealogy, the ways in which you consistently see, um, you know, patterns. And so we ended up, it, was, it became this whole thing. It became a ton of work. It, it, it was it's this beautiful website, I have to say. Um, I, I think this is the, 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 the pleasure I take in it are there's, so we now have 100 entries. We posted 100 entries over 100 days of a variety of things from like Muhammad's hair 
to um, John Cage. Um, I, like just uh, the entries are amazing and they're very diverse. We asked um, friends of ours and scholars, people that we just knew were interested in the category of spirituality. We just prompted them, write about spirituality. And your only rec- the only expectation we had, you had to be really specific and it had to be an object or a thing or an idea. Um, so one of the entries, which got a ton of hits, um, was called Disappearance. And it's a piece by Roger Freeland about women's pubic hair. And he takes up kind of thinking through why it is that women remove pubic hair now and, and brilliantly links it to the study of spirituality. Um, so it was that kind of wild diversity, um, you know, thinking through different particularities and the ways in which the language of spirituality became attached to it. And we were able to afford because of this grant to get this great web designer who did a cool job. And so, um, so the idea had been that we post these sites and then we'd start doing a kind of genealogy bit that is start noticing what were the shared invocations. So the number of entries that, for example, mentioned William James is crazy. Like a lot of them talk about William James, which is maybe unsurprising. But at the same time, what we wanted to maybe do is try to figure out, OK, so at the end of all this, what is spirituality? What is its what is its mechanics? What's its meaning? And that second phase has only just begun. Um, the first phase was kind of gathering these entries and, and noticing. And I'd say the thing that was the most fascinating to us as we got them, Christian, is um, how many people took it as an opportunity to express spiritual feeling. And I will say again, that was very surprising to me. It was less surprising to John. You can just see this, the consistency of my stories is my total, I think, Pollyanna position of the world, because I just didn't know. I, I kind of thought people would submit more like encyclopedia entries, you know, like here's this category. Here's, but people that wrote beautiful things where they really, I would say, confessed spiritual relationships to things. Now, that was not what I expected at all, but it was amazing. And I think it really does testify too to a very consistent way in which spiritual, even by scholars and, and geeks, you know, that it really is a category that evokes for people powerful feeling and so right now we're in a phase where people are responding to that, uh, to frequencies on the imminent frame. So we've asked a bunch of scholars to post responses to it. And um, that's been really great, interesting too. And like, so, you know, some great criticism, some great support, just a lot of, because I think the site itself has elicited all the same kinds of responses that spirituality does. Um, even as it was meant to be this sort of like metacritical thing, it also becomes interestingly an artifact of spirituality. Yeah, and uh, this is great. I don't know if you've seen this article by Michael Altman yet, but uh, he he talks about the aesthetics of the website itself. And, uh, you know, you mentioned it yourself, and it really is true. Uh, the the website is just beautiful. And at the end of his his response to it, he says, it just looks like spirituality. And, and I, th- I think it's true. There's something about the aesthetics of the website that almost makes it a part of this thing we call spirituality. Yeah, you know, I, again, I, Christian, so I totally agree with you. And when I read that piece by Altman, and I so agreed with him right away. I was like, why? I don't know. I just, it, it just shows something about my own unconscious that I just, I didn't pick up on that for some time. And then I was like, right, we have created this highly modernist aesthetic that in its sort of attempts at purification really do match that, that way in which spirituality is always attempting to find some higher ground away from the fray. And, and indeed, and I think in I want to I just want to point out that to me that's I loved all this I love that kind of thing and that's to me the great pleasure of this work which is you know you make these things you push them in the world and you know for example I um one of the things that I, I, I took a lot of pleasure from is that uh, a woman wrote me saying that she was teaching my book in a class on feminist theology, which, again, is something I would never have thought about. 
But then, and then she said, you know, your book in my class got really negative responses. People are really angry about Oprah. They think she's really the death knell to theology. I mean, and to me, that's great. I would never have imagined that that could be. But of course, that's what you do if you can try to render an object strongly enough that then it can be something that gets punched around a lot and used in that way. And I think that's what frequencies has become. It's an object that has, you know, its structure is, is, is really lovely. And that was just really a great collaboration with this designer. But also um, the entries were so, had a lot of integrity too. And because of that, precisely because of their integrity, they're now available to be under a lot of scrutiny. And, and all this piece is great, but we just, there's a, a post on frequency, um, imminent frame right now by Russell McCutcheon, who's kind of a famous, uh, you know, uh, critic of the study of religion. He just tears it apart. He just says, what are these people doing? This is the end. Like, he just, because he, he, he goes to the next stage of Altman and says, yeah, it's spiritual. What are you doing? You're in religious studies. And so to me, that's the grounds of great, great debate. I love that. That makes me just really happy. So, um, but again, it's the kind of thing that when we were doing it, we were just sort of like close to the grindstone with it. Okay, we just want to gather a lot of weird stuff in a space. And I think our kind of meta-consciousness was dimmer than what it probably should have been in its production. But um, Well, thank you. I, I, I think it was a great project. And it, it you know, obviously has sparked a lot of conversation, which uh, that, that's the important part, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so, Catherine, uh, you know, we've taken a lot of time. I don't want to spend too much more. But um, if you if you don't mind, uh, we'd love to hear about what you're working on now, what kind of things you have planned for the future, or maybe what other surprises and uh, randomness you've stumbled upon. <laughs> Um, thanks. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm kind of right now in three projects, I'd say. One, um, I'm working on a book length study of, uh, a fundamentalist preacher from the early 20th century who was really involved with the formation of this pamphlet series called The Fundamentals, which is where we get that word fundamentalism. And he was kicked out of the ministry, the Presbyterian church, um, because he was accused of sodomy. And so it's kind of a Ted Haggard case 100 years earlier. And I'm, I'm using it as a way to talk about the relationship relationship between religion and sexuality. So this is my um, kind of homage to more historical work and, and a return to that. And it's really great. It's, it's amazing. A, a really rich story, very sad story, but a really rich one. Um, the second thing I'm working on is a, a piece that's kind of like run away from me. It's gotten so big, but it's intended for a, an edited volume that my colleague Sally Parami is working on, on sensory cultures of religion. And I'm writing for that a, a study of the history of the office cubicle and its history, which is a really interesting one, um, and especially as it orients around this one company called the Herman Miller uh, Company, which is a furniture company, which if people listen to NPR, maybe they've heard about like the Aeron Chair. It's a very fancy, modernist furniture company, but it also is one of the companies we ascribe with the origin of the office cubicle. And so I'm writing about that because the innovation of the office cubicle is perhaps unsurprisingly and predictably, given my interest, really associated to both the literal denominational history of Southwestern Michigan and the, the Dutch Reformed Church that so predominates there, but also the person who designed the cubicle had a lot of really spiritual ambition for it and thought it was far from being the spiritless cage. He thought it was going to be like, you know, the center of new kind of new monastic enlightenment. And, you know, as we know, that didn't turn out so well for Dilbert and everyone else. But anyway, so it's this, it's a really weird story. And then third, my kind of long run and, you know, we'll probably never have, I'll probably die writing this book as I'm writing a kind of history, a religious history of American happiness and kind of thinking about how uh, the idea of happiness, which is so big right now in psychology, and studies of psychology, philosophy, you know, everywhere you look, there's books on happiness and 
I want to think about that category as a, a part of American religious history and the relationship between religious freedom and concepts of happiness. And that's like epic. And, you know, I, I you know, I, I right now I teach at Yale currently, and there's a, a man who preceded me in my position named Sidney Alstrom, who wrote this mammoth book called The Religious History of the American People. And he spent much of his career working on it. It's like kind of comfort me. It's like my Alstrom book. I'll work on it forever. I don't know if it'll ever come to an end, but, um, but you know, if you ever come across anything on happiness, Christian, I take it. I'm just, I'm gathering all materials. So uh, I welcome, I welcome recommendations. Okay, great. Well, uh, yeah, we definitely look forward to all that. Hopefully, uh, when when those arrive, you w- you would uh, join us again. So, I'd love to. This has been so much fun, Christian. Thank you. Yeah, thanks again, Catherine. It's been wonderful talking to you. And uh, yeah, again, her new book uh, is called Oprah: The Gospel of an Icon. So, thanks again, Catherine. Thanks. Thanks for listening today. That was Catherine Lofton from Yale University about her new book. Oprah, The Gospel of an Icon, which came out from University of California Press in 2011.